This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we answer another listener request and look at and discuss selections from History and Class Consciousness by George Lukacs. One step back, listener requests with the jackboot with a gun pointed directly at our backs. It's, it's much more literal this time because this time we're reading Georgie Lukash, History and Class Consciousness, or at least the chapter on class consciousness. Um, our patron's request was actually even thicker than that, but we got so looped into Georgie Lukash and trying to do justice to this incredibly influential text that um, we kind of just... I mean, the totality is already in Georgie Lukash, so I feel like if we can tackle that, we're basically tackling everything. And here to help us tackle the ins and outs of the dialectic is Viv, our guest for the evening. Hey, good, Viv. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I think here's what I think this could be. If okay. this isn't an episode, this could be what something I edit and stick on the Patreon as our excuse why we don't have an episode. Love it. So this is like this is either like an episode or it's an excuse. It's like an elaborate, <laughs> an elaborate recorded excuse. Well, it's an it's an e word. I mean, come on, it's gonna be fine, you know. Like we just gotta put our best foot forward. You seem seem a little distracted. What's going on? What do you mean? Well, I don't know. Well, look, I, look, I'm just look. I'm I'm nervous because, like, we could have gotten fifty thousand dollars in free money from the government, and then just gotten oh. it written off. Wait, because, wait, 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 wait. Go on, go on. Yeah, because like po- apparently, like podcasters were eligible for the PPE loans during the stimulus, and we and we just never applied for that. Like we could have we could have basically like done that and like sent all the patrons like all their money back and then some you know oh, we could have we, like we, we could have been like a better investment than crypto and wow. I, feel like we really dro- I, I feel like i feel like we really dropped the ball yeah this is this is worse than not going post left towards the end of the bernie campaign oh, man. yeah we really have that on our face this time i was gonna say so apparently like cornell west wrote like his doctoral dissertation partly on Lukacs. Oh shit. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like it, it's like like his, his first book is about Marxism and it's about like Engels, Kautsky, Lukacs and I forget who else. Uh I read it a long time ago. I wanted to reread it. I wanted to reread it for this, but I ran out of time. Anyway, so I was like I was I was trying to see if there's any like video of like West talking about Lukacs and there wasn't but I did find this video of him um, on, like, so apparently uh, Gavin McGinnis has, like, a YouTube series called, like, The Free Speech Bar. Uh, where he has people oh. talk at a bar that, that he's at. 
or I think it's called the the free speech like speakeasy because he's like because free speech is under attack and we got to like do it in a speakeasy because it's underground or whatever. So it, it's right, like the right, corniest yeah. shit. But apparently, it's prohibition. There's, there's, this conversation is with the, is between Cornell West and Candace Owens at this bar. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this this is like 10 months ago and I'm like how have I not heard of this I mean how does how does you know Cornell West talk to Candace Owens does it start with girl you need Jesus like how does it start like well you know so I just started watching I think I think we should I kind of want it's an hour long and I kind of want to run this like on the next like video session we do. okay all right I'm, um, I'm down with that because like for it's kind of amazing that like the Cornell West is just untouchable. You know what I mean? Like only he could do something like this and people wouldn't be mad at him. Yeah. Um, but I, I was watching it. Like the beginning of it was interesting because I think the, the starting topic that like Gavin brings up is about how like, you know, like P, like me too. And like PC culture is killing romanticism. Um, and so Cornell West picks up the ball and the direction he runs with it. He basically just kind of makes like a, a turn away from it and starts talking about kind of the loss of like, like a, like a meaningful engagements with a concept of like intimacy and like human vulnerability um, as, and how that's sort of been like, like flattened huh. into, into domination. And so, but what's brilliant about the move that he does there is he kind of points out, he's like, he even gives like Gavin this look when he says domination where he's like, this can cut both ways. Are you sure you really want to open like this line of questioning? You know, <laughs> But yeah, rules. I I, I, I kind of want to watch the rest of it, uh, but maybe we'll, right. maybe I'll just wait till we watch it on Discord or something. No, we'll, we'll we should yeah pop that in the chamber for our our swamp our swampside chats chats you know <laughs> yeah. swampside side chats. Uh, I didn't know that he wrote on Lukash. I definitely saw him like throw down some like like Freudo Marxist like language when I read his book uh, his book Race Matters. Like he'll he'll just say, well, you know, part of part of you know what motivates white people's racism is this fecal anal, anal sadism. <laughs> <laughs> what did Brother West just say? You know, like and but and you know, it's just he's rooted in critical theory. Like he's, he's he he and he has a, he has a unique ability to be able to like bring that out on fucking I don't know real time with Bill Maher or some shit. Like before everyone cared about it. Well, and it's, it, it makes sense, too, that he, it would be Lukács, because Lukács is one of those guys kind of like Gramsci. Some of these uh, schemas that he develops are, it, it's a lot of ways generalizable, even be, it's designed for, like, you know, proletariat, but you can extend it to, like, other subjectivities. Uh, and many people have. Yeah. Yeah, this is where the standpoint of epistemology comes from, and feminism as well. Is it Sandra Harding that makes this pivot specifically on Lukash? When people were complaining about standpoint epistemology, and I, you know, when I was younger, certainly among them, and, you know, I'll admit that I had a weird reaction to identity politics, which I now understand is because I was Jewish, and the people in my life who were using identity politics the most are the Zionists. And that kind of, like, puts a lot of my life in perspective now. Um... (laughs) <laughs> and so I, I had a bone to pick with um, standpoint epistemology, 
you know, that's why my right wing, like, that's why my, my right wing uncles think it's okay to mow down Palestinians. Um. <laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way, did you see that video of that kid, uh, that Ben Shapiro video where he, you know, like he takes questions from the audience? And so someone like started asking him about the Holocaust. And he's like, oh, well, you believe in intergenerational trauma, I guess. Isn't that snowflake? You know, and, like basically took it and kind of flipped the way that like Zionists essentially do like identity politics from the mm-hmm. right. And of course, like the audience of me was like, boo, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, that, I mean, I don't know. I've just been sort of like examining my own, like, why, why would I have this like adverse reaction to a lot of critical theory when the basic kind of kind of gestating the historical trauma of the Holocaust and trying to, you know, understand why the working class did fascism instead of communism in the 20th century or something like, or, you know, whatever, whatever else happened, you know, short century. But anyway, like, you know, critical theory in a way was like, I don't know, the true temple that had the right reaction in my view to the Shoah, like the universalist reaction that's like, holy shit, that was bad. That shouldn't happen to anybody. Not not just, I'm going to make sure I'm on the other side of that next time. Like, yeah, you know, that's, that shit that's, shouldn't happen. That's so fucked. Did you hear about, like, there was that, like, uh, there was that uh, Israeli politician who was like, we got if, if I could just put all the Palestinians on a train to Switzerland, like, I would do it. And it's like, did you have to say train? <laughs> like, the, Jesus Christ, the, dude. They, they flirt with that stuff all the time. And, you know, it's like, there's, there's something deeply repugnant about it. And like, I don't know, it makes my skin crawl. So person, and you know, and not only do I have this, like, you know, is critical theory, this like source of a sense of where like a real Jewish morality would be for me, (laughs) but then I'm queer on top of it. I mean, I should love critical theory. I, I, I shouldn't have hated any of it. Like, um, but part of it was that I was, you know, I was, you know, sort of like new atheist adjacent, you know, I I thought, you know, the the religious people in my life are these like racist uh, nationalist fanatics that have, you know, completely inverted the German jackboot on their back. Like there's, you know, I don't want anything to do with this. Isn't the problem when it collapses into individualism? Yeah. Well, I mean, as with most things with Lucas, you just you're kind of like, yeah, you're on the right lines, and then where it ends up is always so. With standpoint epistemology, if you take it as like a collective, oh, yes. then there's merit in that. But it seems to have, to some extent, in some contexts, it collapses into individualism, where you can't ever have any sort of uh, any truth that like is collectively agreed upon. I'll say for my part, I've always kind of been into critical, like critical theory, like my portal back into Marxism, like back in the day was a situationist. Cause I was like, you know, so I, so I've always, I've long had a long, a soft spot for Lukacs, uh, whatever, you know, problems and stuff might have, but uh, back to the standpoint thing. I mean, it does seem like there is something, Quality, qualitatively different between Lukacs framing the standpoint of the proletariat uh, versus like the collapse of everything into 
like epistemology itself is like standpoint based because I mean, I, I maybe I can just try and put this together in the way that I've understood it. And if I'm misreading this stuff, you know, uh, feel free to jump in. Okay. So before Marx, the understanding of capital, the political economy was basically a bourgeois science and that it was understood from the perspective of, you know, the sort of bourgeois mercantile class and that informed like their understanding of capitalism. Uh, but for Marx, it was basically only by taking to, into account like the existence of like the subjectivity of the working class within capitalism that you're able to obtain a vantage point that allows you to understand the whole thing. And I think the reason for that is it's, it is the fact of the existence of exploitation because if you're going to rule a society, you basically need to get, some degree of buy-in and and some degree of buy-in and some degree of consent from every sector of society, and you can't do that if you're essentially admitting that a constitutive part of the society is structurally exploited, right? Like you cannot admit the fact of that existence, and so that's basically going to preclude you from being able to develop a totalistic understanding of the system. So. From that from that point, then the only the only subjective like starting point that will allow you you could say like an objective view of the system itself would be the exploited, i.e., the proletariat, and thus like class consciousness is basically the working class collectively coming to the realization of this fact through history by acting upon it. You know, because if like a working class person can't as an individual have class, con I mean, they can like be conscious of this, but they cannot um, completely realize it in terms of their being without acting upon it within the system, which they can only do collectively. Yeah. And I think it's that collectivity that is kind of the essential part of that. And Lukas talks about how um, for the bourgeoisie, there's like he. He explores this in terms of like a dialectical tension between immediacy and mediation. And for the bourgeoisie, there's a limit to that mediation because um, ultimately they like the, the, um, the interests of the individual capitalist that are like directly antagonistic to the interests of the class as a whole. So there is a limit to how far bourgeois consciousness can go. Which, which is where the proletariat have, like, he kind of frames it as an advantage. Right. And you kind of see this. Like, you can see this in the day-to-day -day functioning of bourgeois ideology in the press or even in, like, economics and so forth, where they're unable to, like, holistically incorporate their understanding of anything. And so everything is limited, is reduced to these partial apprehensions of it. Like, take, for instance, especially around crisis. Like, they're never able to develop... Uh, coherent theory as to why it is the system is subject to these recurrent crises. It's either well, there's these specific circumstances here, or these things there, or it's it's the intersection of like these two different uh, you know uh, bits of data, or these two different like these varying economic trends, right? Um, but there's never any there's ever never any coherent understanding of what the dynamics of the system is that keeps continually reproducing these outcomes. And I mean, doesn't Lukács, doesn't he kind of also connect this to 
this form of bourgeois ideology to the way that like because you get into like reification which I, it's, it's my understanding that that is that could also be translated as almost as like thingification is that right yeah um i think there's kind of a distinction between how like marxian reification which seems to concern like labor trans specifically labor transformed into a commodity so that it's like labor itself that's reified mm-hmm. um and so in that instance it's workers resistance that creates that generates consciousness whereas for lukash like his reification seems like more totalizing mm-hmm. so it concerns thought as well and so that's where you get into this weird Althusserian te- like territory because you can't get outside of it and so, if you can't get outside of that, where does um, like where does class consciousness actually come from? Uh, you need something outside of that, and um, yeah, that's kind of when you end up back at the Vanguard Party. The way I've heard it explained, like the reification could be applied. It's basically literally seeing social inst- institutions are products of human social exchange or uh, social intercourse being understood as objects or things like you know like the stock market for instance which is the stock market is essentially a process of uh, exchanges and transactions that are taking place between people who reproduce them every day but it's understood as like this fixed thing you know the nyse um and people behave as it as it if it is this this giant you know this this uh you know giant ocean that they're trying to pull fish from you know what I mean? As if it's a giant, like, natural resource or some object, as opposed to just, you know, almost like a, a, any, like, almost like a rave or a party or something where human beings have congregated to engage in some kind of activity. Yeah, there's sort of, like, two layers there, right? There's the fact that the stock market is all this scaled-up economic activity, which, if you're going to be a very Marxian reductionist about it, means it's all labor at some point. Someone's getting, you know, getting fleeced at some, some somewhere down the line. Um and so in the Marxian sense, there's an element, there's an element of reification. Um, and then in this broader Lukashian sense of, you know, ma- like making the, the thing, like making, like, like externalizing this. It's, this is the very, this is the big difference between like, you know, Western Marxism and Hegelian Marxism versus all this other stuff, right? Is that this is just a much more total version of that theory. This is what inspires the Frankfurt School to make this sweeping critique of bourgeois rationality. Yeah, I do think that distinction, though, between, like, Marxian reification and uh, Lukács' um, conception is kind of critical, though, in the sense of where where he ends up. Mm. It, and you can, understand, you can kind of see why, because his is, his is totalizing, whereas for Marx, it, it specifically focuses on labor, so... I don't know whether I don't think the market in itself is an example of reification for Marx. Well, yeah, well, because yeah, well, because basically he's yeah he's taking something these concepts that Marx developed for his critique of political economy and generalizing it to like the totality of like human society. Yeah, you end up generalizing it to like thought, so you end up with ideology. So, what, to what extent do you think Alth- like Althusser was? Was he was he elaborating on this or was he responding to it oh, or against it? He's like I and we were talking about this earlier in a way it's almost like he's trying to respond <clears throat> to a similar like political moment 
and appealing to philosophy to try to defend it from the, you know, slings and arrows of outrageous political fortune. Like that there's this like core to Marxism that you're trying to defend from the political shifts, from the betrayals of 1914, you know, um, in Lukash's case. And in Althusser's case, you know, is associated with the sort of, uh, the, the shift under like Khrushchev, the, the constitution and revisionism and all this stuff. Um, and trying to appeal to philosophy for some, like, some way to preserve the heart of Marxism. And one of them dives deeper into Hegel than Marx actually does. The other basically sees Hegel as the kiss of death. Anything that has Hegelian residual needs to be purged. Um, both of which I feel like strangely end up in, in the same in the same place of recapitulating the problem in in different terms. In Lukash's case, I find it especially sort of tragic because. Somewhere in this book, he names the Hegelian tendency to become, you know, reactionary. Like, a, a, this reactionary Hegelian tendency to, like, hold this universal above these puny, like, non-universals out here. And, you know, kind of whip them into instantiating, like, the, the universal. Damn it, why, why can't you do this? Um, and it, it's, there's just, I don't know, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of horror that I got reading Lukash because he's so sensitive to this problem. And I think I might have simultaneously not given him enough credit intellectually and then sort of maybe ethically too much credit, I guess, you know, in thinking that maybe this hadn't occurred to him, how this might be used. Um, but he's in a way trying to solve that problem. And it's really like, I think it's very crucial that the equivocation between, let's say, a direct democratic mediation like the Soviet, or, you know, something like the Bolshevik Party, which was well, a lot of things, but not quite as sensitive to the, you know, to the proletariat's, like, I guess, day-to-day -day existence to the extent that that really matters to Lukash, which I guess if you really think about it, maybe it doesn't. Like... The idea is to get them to kind of line up with this universal interest. And the thing that I find difficult is that I feel like if you don't believe that there is something like this universal interest out there that's sort of embedded in the capitalist structure, that you don't really have that much reason to be a Marxist, right? Why assume that this is all leading somewhere if there isn't some common interest that, you know, a lot of people have to pull together to try to push through this? Like... Um, is that because you don't think there's like uh, like anything there's no like normative direction within Marxism or yeah I mean I, I don't really believe that that's what Marxism thinks like um, Marxism thinks it doesn't have any normativity but if you're at least if you're like a communist that can't be true like yeah where does that come from outside of Marx? Um, I mean, arguably it comes from, like, Kant or something. Like, and I, I don't know how people become, you know, communists if not because for these, like, why shouldn't there be a, a group of people that just exists, uh, you know, 
then that's where like this going back to the standpoint stuff. That's yeah. I, I, I like yeah. standpoint epistemology for developing like a set of ethics from because um, that actually gives you some sort of something to work with. Where I, I don't really find that anywhere else, like within like the Marxian tradition. No, that's fair actually. Like that claim that you don't need ethics directly in order to get this. It, it that only that only works from the sort of um, I sometimes j- call it Jainist because you know in the classical Jainist like uh, uh, texts there there's all like you have this really cool pluralist epistemological theory that's super interested in everyone's like perspective and there's just it's almost like an epistemological version of nonviolence or something so maybe strikes people now as a little hippy-dippy but you have to understand this is these are the theories that are the roots of dialectical thought or at least you know dialectical materialist thought through like joseph Dietzgen and and like you know that's part of where lukash is coming from i really think that has this potential to you don't have to posit any ethics because you're already listening to these people like you know and the fact that the fact that everyone's voice is there at all is ethical in some in some basic way where you don't have to posit additional ethics or, or something because you're they're part of the, the people that aren't part of the conversation in history are part of the conversation in a way with that sort of epistemology like um, whereas in you know most parts of my life. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's really not but you know like uh, i haven't seen anything with the epistemological potential of the soviet you know <laughs> like in my life and uh or, or when i do it's very short-lived i actually sometimes see it you know like when it's burning down a police station or like you know it's little little wisps here and there but like you know not as a permanent institution i can point to and like like get involved with usually and 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 also most of the committed communists I know are not aren't aren't, aren't proletarians like that's you know might be just a function because you know I'm like slightly like a petty bourgeois but like I think Marx's history sort of bears out a lot of the big heads are also like so that says to me that usually Marxists are coming at this from a from ethics and not just from those really cool epistemological principles of if you listen to everybody, there would be a greater rationality. That actually does underpin some way to evade ethics and dialectical materialism. Yeah, and that then kind of refutes standpoint ethics to an extent because, as you said, it's it's like more like the like like a uh, an economic middle class or a petty bourgeoisie that seem to um, hold more revolutionary politics than those whose interest it might be in to a greater extent. Um, but you also get this... I think why Lukash becomes a different class is because you have standpoint epistemology and defence of a vanguard party. So you have this sort of... this concept that really sort of embraces pluralism and then it collapses back into like 
and that girl party, and it all is fairly consistent, despite all of that. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Yeah. The standpoint thing is, I think, generalizable and basically correct that, you know, in a relationship between an oppressor and oppressed, the oppressed will understand that the the truth value, the truth of it more than the, than the oppressor, um, or at the very least, the oppressor has an incomplete view of what's going on, or they present one at least outwardly. But the problem is like with the standpoint stuff is that the way it actually ends up has ended up being implemented is essentially in a way to just kind of um, flatten all forms of oppression into an indistinguishable mass with, you know, they, bourgeois, they, they basically do what he says that bourgeois consciousness does, which is, you know, particularize everything into this like eclectic, incomplete whole, so that they never actually really have to address any of the underlying problems. I mean, but the Vanguard Party—that's like the flip side of him. It seems like it's he's trying to deal with the problem of, okay, how does this class consciousness um, historically manifest itself? Uh, you know, like practically, right? Um, because you know. What I was saying about class consciousness earlier, how that, what particular manifestation that takes historically could be a lot of different things, right? Like the the idea of the class interest of the proletariat manifesting itself collectively, pull out like a million different timelines that could look like a lot of different things depending on how things were configured. You know, what does that what does that look like in history? You can understand, you know, at the time like the Leninist Vanguard Party at the time as the thing, especially since he himself personally had an interest in believing that that was the case, you know? Yeah, as being, like, part of an ally that, like, that, like, I think got, like, reacted and then, you know, invaded. I'm I'm having a little trouble with the, like, with the notion that this is all, like, sort of formulated with the Vanguard Party. Because he starts, he seems to start with, Luxembourg's notion of the vanguard, which is partyist in like the broad Marx way, but not in the Leninist way. It's like a, it's it's kind of more like the way that some of the Panthers use the word vanguard, where they they think that they're out there somewhere. Is this, you know? There's this group of people that are most in touch with the parts of society that bear uh, the class interests most clearly, you know, and you have to go find those people, those people are the vanguard, like, and our party should, should get those people. And there's, whenever I've interacted with, you know, Trotskyists or something in, in the United States, they always pay lip service to that notion of the vanguard, at least at first. <laughs> and then it kind of slips into the other notion of the vanguard. Do you think that this, this like, the conclusions that, you know, I guess Lukash gets essentially drawn to regarding, the like, the Leninist form of the vanguard party, do you think that's, like, sort of intrinsically in there, like, before he goes there even? Because of his sort of, like, epistemological notions? Is this, or is there something, like, untenable about Luxembourg's version of the vanguard or something? Or I'm just, I'm trying to grasp this, because... Yeah, it does feel like he hits, he hits a problem in terms of where does this class consciousness come from? And that's, like, where Bridge comes from, 
in terms of the party. You'd struggle to think that that was a starting point, though, wouldn't you? It's just, like, he definitely, like, you know, starts defending uh, dictatorship, even in the stronger sense, not just of the proletariat over the bourgeoisie, but, you know, political dictatorship. <laughs> you know, as early as 1918, so it's not totally foreign to him, he sees himself allied with the Russian Revolution to some extent. And there's a, you know, council, Soviet-like revolutionary process that was going on there, too. So... It makes sense, symbolically speaking, that he would be aligned with that. But I think in his actual, like, day-in, day-out politics, he really hated Bela Kun, and Bela Kun was, like, the, the, the Third International Proxy, or the proto-Third International Proxy, who would eventually be the guy. And, um, yeah, like, it just, you know, that, yeah, in a way, like, even though he's, like, defensive of the Bolsheviks, it's almost like that makes so much more sense before the Bolsheviks actually get their hands on him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's essentially a victim of toxic cancel culture when in the 1924 uh, uh, it's one of the congresses of the Third International. Zinoviev calls him out by name. Man, if only, if only there had been a speakeasy. I, I know. If only uh, there had been a run. speakeasy for free speech. Gavin could have sat those two down and they just could have hashed it out. Yeah. Could have sat down Georgie Lukash and fucking, I don't know, Joe Rogan or something. And you could have had a good conversation. I mean, you know, Lukash would be pro going on Rogan, of course, because you need to, you know, prevent people from engaging in palism. I mean, I would be pro going on Rogan. Well, I just sort of realized in mid-speaking that it's probably the definition of tailism. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, how's everyone feeling? Yeah, feeling pretty good. Yeah. Okay. You know, we might not have the definitive Cambridge, like, encyclopedia entry on Lukash, but... Uh-huh. I don't know, like, I had a good think about why I feel the way I did about standpoint epistemology and why I didn't approach Lukash, like, Oh yeah! Oh, this guy's awesome. Like this guy defends mm-hmm. marginalized like uh, forms of like uh, <laughs> of thought. You know, instead I'm like, you know, I have a bone to pick with this guy. Why? Like, eh, it, it helps to think these things through. I mean, he, yeah. I mean, he is he is such a fascinating figure because yeah, he he does ultimately you know sort of like cave and accept party discipline. But he is also somebody who is very influential on dissident strains of Marxism that were critical of the USSR. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes like even even like left communists and like the most like late Soviet like critical uh, groups groupings. My anxiety is like not doing this justice, but, but, but there's so much here. Like I feel like the amount we would have to read <laughs> to be able to like grasp all of it, um, and because it's like yeah, there's this intersection of the his complicated relationship uh, to the politics, you know, of his time period. Uh, you know, he's like, he's like, he's in an, as a political actor, he's kind of marginal, but he's in and out of it. He, he abandons this train of thought that we've been talking about for a while and essentially sort of just retreats back into, you know, his original thing, which was just like literary criticism, which is another thing too, because like, that's what he comes from. So it makes, it makes sense that he would be focused on the, the questions of consciousness and, the areas that like artist types are interested in yeah and it, and it makes sense that the literature that comes out of it is really useful for literature review 
right? Right. And, you know, literary critique, like, maybe more so than it is for, I don't know, communist revolution. But, you know, but this is where Lukash is coming from. He is coming from, you know, literary tradition. And I don't know, like, I don't want to completely dismiss, like, the sort of, sort of, like, literary experiment kind of stuff that people do. Like, there's, like, a lot of us wouldn't be here if we didn't read some cool literary experiments at some point. Um, but yeah, I guess, like, I hadn't really thought about that. You know, the, the guy that basically invents the so-called Western Marxism? Literary critic. Yeah. Inspires critical theory. Critical theory develops all this stuff, and you mainly see it, or I mainly see it, at least in the English department, English literature. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, in a, in a way, it makes more sense of this than I previously had, because why the fuck is Marxism in the literature department? Like, you know, I guess Marx is literature and wrote about literature. You know, I would, but I wanted to know about Marx's politics. I want to know about his economics. I wanted to know about, you know, a lot of of parts of Marx I was interested in, but, you know, when I was at University of California, you found all the Marxists in the English department. You you know, another thing that I always knew Lukash for is for predicting that Marx had a theory of alienation. To the point about him, like, recanting a bunch of interesting things, he brings it up as, like, I'm so sorry I didn't predict Marx's theory of alienation, right? Like, and that... Because, you know, as we were talking about before, um, you know, Marx talks about alienation reification in terms of labor, not in terms of just consciousness more generally, like Hegel does. And Lukash uh, went with the, you know, the Hegelian version. But he knew Hegel well enough to know that Marx had some theory of alienation. I don't know. Those, like, feats of textual prediction, like... Yeah, I guess we criticize him, but... To be fair, he plucked that out of... It was just capital, was it? Capital. He yeah, he, he had, like, what, capital and, like, um, communist manifesto. Like, you know, like, wh- how, you know, that's pretty good. And here he is, like, apologizing for it. Like, you don't have to apologize, my dude. Like, I mean, he, he, he probably did if he wanted to, like, you know... Live. Yeah. Yeah. So. There's so many, like, just... Like any, you know, pro-Bolshevik text at this time, there's so many statements where he's criticizing the bourgeoisie in a way that just, the more you kind of zoom out with the history, the more it just sort of makes my teeth ache or something. You know, there's this or that passage about how the peasantry don't have as clear a class interest, which is why their party don't doesn't win. And the more you know about the peasantry and the Russian Revolution and the Socialist Revolutionary Party, the more that seems very wrong. Um, like, uh, you know, the, the part about the bourgeoisie only being able to be a minority, and then the, you know, the class-conscious part of the bourgeoisie is a minority of a minority. And then you look at the demographics of Russia and you think to yourself, okay? <laughs> like, um, there's... There's this tragic thing about the bourgeoisie, according to Lukash, because, you know, right at the apex of their power, they are going to run into these, like, interminable crises that will not be resolved by them. And I guess in conceptual terms, he's right. Like, (laughs) there's no, like, systemic, like, approach to crisis. It's always ad hoc. Like, 
um, and in, in terms of economics, I, I, I suppose. But, you know, following the whole Lukashian turn, like, why stop there? You know, there's, all, there's a crisis in almost every kind of, every corner of bourgeois, like, life in bourgeois society. There's the ecological crisis, a bunch of sociological crises, you know, politics are meltdown, like, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, fixtures of bourgeois, like, stability that are not really doing it right now. Um, that do sort of, like, bear out that there are these, like, yeah, there's just this epistemic blockage in bourgeois thought. It's necessitated by just not, by kind of purposely, but not admittedly purposely, having the big picture. Well, yeah, like the, the, the bourgeoisie is, it, they're like, a, it's like an alcoholic, you know, whose life is like spiraling downwards. You know what I mean? Like they could, you could, they could, they can continue to like scrape together some money to drink some more and stay drunk 24 seven, you know, and, and keep crashing their car and, you know, uh, you know, maybe, maybe murder somebody and have to hide it or something. You know what I mean? Like you can keep, you can just keep going on that. But sooner or later, like things have to hit a point where it's like, do you want to keep doing this? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like capitalism is basically Bojack Horseman. (laughs) 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 I I think this is a good time to introduce the higher synthesis that I that I pioneered to get through today's uh, reading is that those of you that know me know that I have a, a nice Hello Kitty ice bomb that I that I, I like. Um, I posted a picture of it on our on our Instagram account, um, and I've also extolled the virtues of the live resin vape pen. Um, I, when I say they fixed vaping, I don't mean they fix what does to your lungs. No, they just fixed like the kind of high that you get out of it. And it was only while reading Georgie Lukash's history and class consciousness that I, I was reaching beyond this, like my epistemic boundaries to like just kind of take the bowl out of the bong and just like turn the pen upside down, push it into the bong, and hold it down while I was breathing in. And I got basically a dab without the blowtorch. And let me tell you, people. I think I finally understand the dialectic. Like, I grasp it. Like, I fully grasp it. You know, when other people try to understand things, all they got are these snapshots. You know, these, like, these little pictures of these little, you know, it's all very static and, you know, unidirectional. Not the totality. It's not the totality. They're gonna, it's too formal. But now that I've pioneered this technique, I can grasp it in its fullness. Uh, God, talking like this really does make me understand how Hegel kind of has the roots of totalitarianism in it, like in this in this in this way that like apparently like parsing you know the point in different types of labor that isn't actually the the main thing because it happens with Leninism, which and then it. There's also this weird way that, like, Western Marxism has this, like, it just has the same epistemic problems, like, uh, and, like, one of the things that Lukash is really, like, prized for by the Marxist humanists is his attempt to do a non-dogmatic Marxism, which, you know, on a certain, like, 
which is just yeah of course like I would love that there's a certain point like that like I agree there but um I really don't know that this gets you there like the the idea that the you know I guess any historical idea can be like I guess bent around something one of the only times Marx really explicitly uses the language of dialectics and capital is when he's talking about property law. And he talks about, you know, the law to protect, to, to protect the property of the producer. Uh, you know, pro these property laws becomes the very mechanism that is expropriated. It's, it's, it's hard to, I don't know, I guess, I guess it's hard for me to, to not look at this and see like, and see a similar, like, weird cunning of history at work here, where Lukash builds this, is trying to save Marxism from, like, hardcore politics, and is, is, is trying to restore, you know, the true orthodox spirit, you know, against, like, what Marxist orthodoxy was, you know, beforehand. And, I don't know, there's something noble about the attempt, and very frustrating that it didn't work and uh when i look extremely downstream of something like this at uh let's look at the marxist human initiative which is an a, you know an american like uh group headed by andrew Kleiman, um the the economist who did uh reclaiming marxist capital who uh i, I you know and i read through this book on from alpha to omega and, you know, a lot, a lot of interest in, in that work. But one thing that bothers me about his group is that they talk, they're, they're an anti-Leninist vanguardist organization. <laughs> they explicitly take Luxembourg's idea of a vanguard, like, but then do Leninism. <laughs> like, they try to organize Marxism around the, this, like, alternate way and, and avoid dogmatism. But they still do it. Like, like everything, like, somehow... It still recreates like paraleninist practice without without that like just from the Hegel, I guess. I don't know where it's coming from. I, I, maybe or maybe it's just you know social. Maybe I'm being very like idealist, right? Like thinking about why these ideas keep going in these different directions. Probably because they're exposed to these incent these people and incentive structures that have to make decisions and you know maneuver, but. Um, I don't know. It's some, something I think about maybe a little too much. Because I know, I know some interesting left comms that have, like, that definitely are doing worldview Marxism. But they have no, like, Soviet Union. There's, they're like Christians without heaven. You know, they do all the stuff to, to prepare themselves for heaven. But they don't, they, they, they don't have anything to defend. It's like, it's sad. It's like, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, it shouldn't work without that. It shouldn't fry your brain without something to defend. You know, if you're just defending like the the possibility of class interest, I, I don't. Why why should that fry your brain? That shouldn't. I think that that's good. I don't know. I think there's something good about trying to defend the possibility of of a common class interest, and it's just you don't want to do what people do with it, and you know the moment that it's named, use it. Hold it over the head of, of the people it was supposed to represent, like, like um, I don't know. 
long-term Marxist problems, right? Like something that has that each generation of Marxists ends up trying to, you know, chisel out for themselves how, how to try to avoid this. I guess if we're, you know, dealing with pro-revolutionaries, you know, and capitalism having not died, it's inevitable that what they tried didn't work. So maybe, maybe not to be too dour about it, but just as a, uh, I don't know, like, it's, it's still something that we're still trying to, like, overcome. Like, this is, this is a central problem. This is like a, it's like a Tao thing, where there's like a, there's a way of speaking about it that can become quite self-undermining, but to be consistent about it, you sort of have to walk the walk and avoid this. And it's like totally not clear how to do that. Like, so, I don't know. Lukash is an interesting example of someone trying to do this and failing, but having a lot of, like, really generative, interesting stuff come out of it. And, I don't know. I clearly respect him more than he respects himself <laughs> writing this fucking preface. It's so depressing. What, 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 are we, what are we missing here? Is, is there something... I don't know. Did you hear anything that, that struck you as off here, or is there something, I don't know, anything you want to push back on? No, I, I think um, what Hesri was just saying is, like, kind of what makes Lucas so interesting. The fact that, again, I, um, it's difficult to know whether what where his starting point is from, if it is, like, a good faith one rather than a defence of the party, but I'd like to think it's the former, and considering where he ends up, and how much of like what's been taken out of it in terms of both like a defense of vanguardism but also things like standpoint epistemology it's i think the fact that you can go in both those directions from his thought like in some ways it's a real problem like how do you overcome that um and yeah so like in um, Taylorism and the dialectic. Um, it's ironic because Lukash he's responding to like a critique from De Boren who accuses him that like the concept of class consciousness and like the stress of the subjective factors um, results in like sidelining of the centrality of the Vanguard Party. But actually, like that's not what happens at all. And like that is also what Althusser critiques uh, Lukash for. But um, in some ways, Lukash is trying to square the circle by showing that there is a distance between like the maximum consciousness that the criteria can have in that situation and the consciousness it actually does possess. And that bridge, what overcomes that bridge is, of course, the party. So in, in um, history and class consciousness, the subject of history is a proletariat, but in Taylorism it ends up being like um, the party itself. But it's actually like consistent in terms of that's where he's going to end up because um, Taylorism is often regarded as like um, like to some extent the beginning of his like rejection of uh, history and consciousness but it's actually consistent in that sense he thinks of it like a defence right? yeah that's the thing he is starting by uh, with a defence against the Boreal yeah um See, that's the problem with these, uh, with all these, like, uh, you know, patriotic socialist types on Twitter. They're tailless. 
they're hailing the reactionary prejudices of, of the working class instead of uh, upholding the, the. I know, I know, I sound, I, I sound like I'm kidding, but like they're not actually upholding, you know, the true universal class interest. They're getting caught up in this, uh, you know, nationalistic segmentation, and uh, you know, appealing to like retrograde kind of not like uh, stuff that comes out of nationalism. I kind of do. I kind of do believe it, you know. Like, and that's the kind of thing that well, fucking bothers me. It's like I kind of. Well, the thing is, it. like, they're not. They're not really appealing to anybody. Well, no, of course, like, of nobody, course, nobody likes that stuff. No, no. Like, they, but they, they think they are. Like, yeah, I, like yeah, it's, appealing it's, it's, as it's a so as a verb, you know. Like they're 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 making an appeal. Has Thailandism ever worked? I, I can't imagine. Well, I like I don't know. Who loves being pandered to? Who like adores it and really finds it like charming and like ah trustworthy? Like, <laughs> like I'm I'm trying. Yeah. I, <sighs> I mean that's the thing. Like for ta- like like Maoists will say stuff like, you know, from the masses to the masses. But like, what Mao was talking about was like being a warlord and like administering like a rural agricultural region and like. Northeast China, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, from the masses to the masses, yeah. And as soon as, like, you know, as soon as you've taken control of like several city blocks in San Francisco, you know, and and like establish establish like a you know sovereign territory and start making raids on the local national guard, right. like, yeah, okay. Then you can incorporate. Then you can incorporate like the demands for you know whatever it is they want there now. Uh, you know, maybe get maybe maybe like light some Google buses on fire or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's a, that was pretty solid, solid proletarian. Um, the, the extent you know, proletarians can still live there. Um, support. So I mean, well, I mean that sounds pretty simple. I mean, shit, I, I didn't think it would be that easy to define the class interests of a proletariat. Oh. Well, it's like it's. There's like a general class interest that's implied in the structure of capitalism, um, but the more specific you get, the harder it gets to determine what's what, right? Like that's always the problem. The problem is always transition, right? Like how does when when does that leap happen, and what does it look like? You know, when does it make that passage from the in itself to the for itself? You know, uh, and what and that's where that's where the rubber meets the road, and that's the hardest thing to always figure out. And so, yeah, you're probably always going to be attempting to extrapolate from, you know, the real movement that's in front of you, what might fit. Is there in this dialectic something that uh, is productive towards, you know, the end of, like, abolishing or replacing this network of relationships that constitutes capitalism, you know, replacing it with something better? Uh, Is it, is it, is what's apparent in front of me right now evolving could it could it possibly evolve in a direction that could begin to chip away at that structure is always the question and what you need is a rubric to evaluate that yeah i mean and i i don't trust a lot of the kinds of stuff like the methodological baggage that we have to to do this in a way that isn't too like profligate and like just Larding on, I, I don't know, you know, political traditions, essentially. Like, and so my, like, 
my thought process is more or less like is extraordinarily reductionist and economistic. At a certain point, like, couldn't we just, you know, figure out the sort of overall structural class logic of capitalism and then sort of think about in the most abstract way, you know, like what co cooperative, like what cooperative action means then, like, I don't know, like in this, like very like heady sort of, you know, pro-revolutionary game theory way, like, I think you could sort of find like, you could do some sort of science of collective, of, you know, class interests or something like, and to, you know, have it in its in its shortest term it's always the most reactionary shit because there is a lot of stuff on this <laughs> like like in the short term medium term but there's also like this projected hegelian sort of idea that's in marx and communism and it's not even something i feel like you can just dispense with like althusser wants to that you know this would have to be like a you know, this would have to pass from from the short term to the longest term interest, and that in this like broader, more long term interest, even something like you know, uh, an, like an an issue that seems pretty intractable on class grounds, like abortion or something, and the overall interests of like people, individuals in the working class, you know, they could be harmonized in some like broader way if you took like a long enough view. That might just be fallacious, you know, I could work out in some like detail whether it is like at some point. Well, I mean, like the class consciousness, the class consciousness is generated by the friction of like the proletariat coming up against Coming, basically coming up against resistance from the system and trying to, to get out of you know being trying to abolish itself essentially, uh, so that that phenomenon has to be happening, and I think that sort of movement makes it much easier to generate like a concept of what the specific class interest is. I mean, otherwise, what you just have is like charts, you know, and you could just like, okay, we'll see it. You know, then you're basically like the Pete Buttigieg of Marxism. Like, well, actually, you know, it's it, if, you, if you look at the data, it's in your interest to, uh, you know, not uh, allow abortions to be good, to allow abortions to happen, you know, or whatever. Um, well, yeah, but I mean, like, compared to, I don't know, like, Hegelese or... You know, Althusser right. being like, okay. "Oh man, fuck Hegel! Hey, let's invent a whole new wizard language, and you know, do yeah. up, use Spinozan metaphysics to you know, like just fucking re just recapitulate all the same shit." Like, if Marxists have some kind of like insight into class interests that you're supposed to like share, oh, come help the proletariat with their class interests. Um, I don't know. Like, you're probably not going to do it through like. I, I feel. I feel like it would be more. It probably have to be more formal or something, like, and maybe this is a statement of skepticism, like, oh shit, like maybe, maybe what Marxists think that they're supposed to do isn't what Marxists are supposed to do. <laughs> but I kind of do feel like something like this could happen, and that, and that maybe the, that like if you could do that and like scale it down to tactics, because if you have that kind of like long term bullshit going on, um, and then then you thought about more specific situations you would at least have this, like, 
I don't know. We'd have something systematic to work with. That's what Marxists always say we have. But we, you know. That problem that, like you say, he identifies the same problem that some of the council problems saw. Like, the, you build consciousness on, like, on workers as a class, and then that same class has to abolish itself. Like, that qualitative shift, it, it does seem intractable in a way, and that's why, like, you can kind of see why Lukash falls back on the party and whilst we disagree perhaps with that formulation I don't I'm not really convinced as to what to how to like get round that yeah yeah that's why I would I float this at all you know what I mean like how you know how would people go about solving a contemporary like behavioural like question what's the interest of a large group you know what I mean like that's just you know, if a normal person locked in their bourgeois mind prison just tried to think about it using the existing tools of the society, that's what they would do. Like, and it's, you know, it seems like maybe less of a life detour than, you know, committing yourself to 20 years of reading Hegel or something. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just as much of a life detour, but maybe down the road it could lead to something, some kind of practical form of theory or something. I'm just spitballing here. Like, maybe the thing to do is just to read, like, trade union, like, tactics literature and, like, ignore all the stuff that's about fucking board meetings or whatever. Like, and just, you know, <laughs> look for the shop floor. Do they even have shop floor stuff? Or is that's probably all for management. Do they even have, like, game theory for shop floor, like, organizing? I'm starting to think, like, actually, Lacan was, like, one of the more ethical philosophers in the continental tradition. Because, like, is, is it, he just... He, is, that, is, that, is that in regards to the, the Thai's uh, relationship with him? Or what, what are you talking well, about? Well, no, because, like, cause like, like, Hegel, I think a lot of it was, like, you know, you had to be there, man. You know, you had to be at those lectures. You know? <laughs> I think it's... And I think I think it's the same thing with Lacan, but like so Lacan just like did everything he could to make everything that was written down like as obs- impenetrable and obscure as possible, so that like you know you just don't even bother, you know, because he understood like you know you gotta you gotta he's he's like the Grateful Dead you gotta see him like live in person to really get it, you know, and he's not around anymore so it's like fuck it, right. So what you're saying is that uh, speech over writing. Yeah. Put one, yeah, definitely. Put one in Socrates' column. Oh yeah, a thousand percent. Yeah. That's 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 two. That's two in that column for me for sure. Yeah. That's what podcasts are for. That's that is what podcasts are for. We work these things out. Yeah. Yeah. If we if we like Derrida, kind of like you know thought that maybe texts were better than speech, you know. We'd be uh, we'd be rolling in uh, in that in that Jacobin money, I guess, right? Like, I think that, I think. Well, here's the thing. Actually, I, I don't understand why you would trust that he was a writer. <laughs> of course, he's going to tell you that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like, the immortal words. You know. Of Bjork. Yeah, us honest people who understand that, like, you know, talking to you, like, 
speech to speech communication is the real deal. That gets lost to the wind. You shouldn't let Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, trust us. We uh, we ha- we understand the class interests. We have the uh, exclusive, uh, you know, monopoly on peering into the phantasmagoric, like really cool dialectical, like pluralist thing that's going on out there. But you can only see it from here. Unfortunately, it's just yeah. Yeah, and if if you ever like feel like there's a contradiction in what I'm saying, <laughs> you know. You're not going to spend a bunch of time, like, pulling quotes and, like, comparing them and trying to figure out, you know, where the logical contradiction is. I'm just going to go, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> and you're, you're not going to check. You're not going to, like, fast forward through the episode to, like, figure out when I said what. Yeah. Oh, you, probably can't, you probably can't even find the episode. Well, we certainly couldn't. Yeah. Philip, you asked me earlier today, how many episodes do you have? And I, I just couldn't even ballpark it. It's like, uh... You couldn't even spell your podcast that That's right, yeah. Uh, Patreon.com slash Swampside Chats. I don't know how many times I've said it, but I couldn't type it earlier today. Yeah, so anyway, so the per- to the person who requested this episode, like, we're sorry we couldn't get you an episode on this. I uh, hope this clarifies you know, like, we're gonna, we're gonna go back and we're gonna read all through Sarah and probably some Hegel and maybe some Kant. Oh, but to, uh, and to then, really understand Kant, you have to read Hume because that's who yeah. he's responding to. And uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll read that shit. Um, I mean, and Hume then without Montaigne, I mean, you're just shooting in the dark. So yeah, so you know, in about like six years, we'll come back and we'll really we'll basically we'll we'll have cracked this nut. Uh, we'll figure out exactly what Lukács meant. Um, I mean, without sexist and, empiricus, you don't really understand the difference between modern and ancient skepticism so yeah and honestly we'll probably actually improve on his framework like all this stuff like i've i've actually taken like careful mind notes because again i don't write things down but i've taken mind notes on like every issue that we've developed with this and i think we could probably patch this thing up pretty good and have um you know have a successful framework to uh objectively evaluate uh the real movements and determine what's going where uh which is going to be that's I mean that's going to be that's going to be very useful. Yeah, um, we're well on the yeah, way. Like, so in six years we're going to start our own Vanguard party. Hell yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, so you're on, you're probably going to want to get you're going to you're going to want to get in on that on the ground floor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to do that, you can head over to Patreon.com <laughs> yep. uh, forward slash Swampside Chats. That's right. Uh, Make sure that when we start our party, I have a you know a quap of like live resin in in the back of, of my car so that at any time I can perfect the dialect of the synthesis like we can make this happen you know man when we're done your car's gonna run on resin that's right <laughs> it's gonna be like it's gonna be like it's gonna be like the Dabs version of the Cheech and Chong van <laughs> hell yeah yeah and that and that's you know and that's what's going to foster class consciousness. Yeah, the dab clouds gonna, flooding drive, through the dri- streets. Just drive that bitch around, yeah. Have people thinking about some shit, you know? Yeah. Blast some J. Cole out the window. Really get people thinking and moving, you know? Yeah, free your mind, your ass will fall out. I guess the materialist version would be vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
that's it for this time. The next episode you'll hear from us will be another look at one Teddy K. Theodore Kaczynski, which should be an interesting conversation to have in the wake of the Supreme Court essentially deciding that the EPA has zero power to regulate carbon emissions produced by industry in the United States. And of course, the tidal wave of other reactionary rulings coming from that institution. So buckle up, buckaroos. Until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.